Why not capitalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jason Brennan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Jason Brennan. Jason is Robert J. and Elizabeth Flanagan, family professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. He's also a research professor in the Department of Political Economy at the University of Arizona. He specializes in politics, philosophy, and economics. He's the author of more than just a few books and one of the most productive writers you can probably meet. One of his books gives us the title of this episode and our question today. On episode seven of The Curious Task, we had Eric Mack on to explore the question, why not socialism? And the book of the same name, written by G.A. Cohen. Today, we're talking with the person who wrote the response to that book, and it's called Why Not Capitalism. Jason, thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. So Jason, in each episode, we start with a question, just go over the answers and discussion leads us. So let's kick it right off. Why not capitalism? Oh, well, that's the entire book. So uh, I hope we have like 15 <laughs> minutes to go through it. What I'm doing in this book, Why Not Capitalism, is directly responding to Jerry Cohen's book, Why Not Socialism. And what Cohen wants to do in that book is try to convince the reader that deep down they are a socialist, that their immoral intuitions drive them towards socialism, even though they don't recognize it. Uh, and so the way that I structure my argument is to explain his argument. I then have a parody of his argument, which leads to the exact opposite conclusion. But the careful reader will understand that there's something wrong with the way I make my argument for for capitalism. Uh, but when you see what's wrong with my parody, you'll see what's wrong with his original argument. However, then the sort of structure is once you sort of see what the flaw is, you would nevertheless get the argument that capitalism is better. And, and to be clear, what Cohen wants to do is say that socialism might not work in the real world, but the reason it doesn't work is because people like you and me and Cohen and others are morally bad people. However, if we were good, if we were morally good, if we always did the right thing and always had the right attitudes, socialism would work. And so what he's trying to say is that even though socialism doesn't work in the real world, it's a flaw in us. Socialism is still the best and most just system. And he wants to argue that if human beings were angels, if they were morally decent, then we would dispense with capitalism and have a socialist system instead. So he thinks socialism has the moral high ground, even though it's a failure. And my book is meant to respond to that, show what's wrong with his argument, and argue um, something that most people don't think, which is that even if we were angels, even if we were morally flawless, we would still want capitalism over socialism. And at the beginning of your book, actually, you talk about not conceding the moral high ground. I kind of like that because it is true when a lot of people you know, participate in this kind of conversation of what quote socialism versus quote capitalism. They do exactly what a lot of maybe even Cohen's doing, which is saying exactly, hey, if we were all nice people, this would be the moral high ground. But you say that's not the, the approach you're taking to the whole book. Yeah. So I think maybe it's worth like diving into like the structure of the parody and sort of see how it goes. Um, so Cohen is willing to concede that uh, in the 20th century, we had this sort of experiment between two different types of economic systems and that capitalism outperformed socialism uh, in general. I mean, he recognizes that we don't have any fully capitalist societies and any fully socialist societies. But in general, the capitalist societies outperform the socialist societies by a large amount. And even though he was a Marxist, uh, by the end of his life, he basically conceded that bourgeois economics, by which he just means economics, is uh, correct. You know, the standard neoclassical theories that you learn like in college are more or less correct. And they explain why socialism, in part why socialism has failed. 
but nevertheless, even though socialism has done badly, he thinks that we, if we were good, we'd be socialist. And his way of illustrating that is to have you imagine a camping trip. So he says, like, imagine that you and your friends truly love each other. You really care about each other. And because of that, you all care about making sure everyone's welfare is equally promoted. No one is sort of like the second class member of your group. You don't have like a Cartman that you kind of tolerate barely. Like everyone's sort of your friend. And you decide to have a camping trip together. Well, it's like if you really care about each other, you might bring different things to the camping trip. Someone might bring a fishing pole. Someone might bring some tents. Someone's always going to bring a guitar so they can play like Wonderwall or something like that. But when you get to the camping trip, you would share all of the goods communally. And because you truly care about one another, you wouldn't free ride or take advantage of other people's willingness to share. Further, he says on that camping trip, uh, you try to make sure that the chores and the tasks that have to be done would be shared equally. So no one has sort of like a worse lot. And you try to organize things so everyone's having like an equally good time. And he says, that sounds like a pretty good camping trip. And that's how really good friends would treat each other. Then he asks you to imagine... Well, what if the camping trip started behaving or the people on the camping trip started behaving the way they do in real life capitalist societies? Right. So he says, like, all right, so imagine like Morgan uh, is really good at cracking nuts and she's willing to teach the rest of us how to crack nuts, but only if she gets out of like cleaning the latrine. So she's kind of like a college professor in this uh, situation. <laughs> uh, you know, we work for pay, but we don't do it for free. Uh, if Georgetown doesn't pay me. I'm, I'm not logging in. Uh, or there's another person who's good at catching fish and he's willing to catch more fish so everybody can eat more, but only if he gets some sort of differential pay or differential benefit. Or suppose there's a character who his dad had come to that camping spot 30 years earlier. He had, uh, his dad stocked one of the ponds full of fish and he tells him where it is. So then at dinner that night when we're eating, uh, he's like, he has like a plate just full of fish and has extra food compared to the rest of us. And he kind of gloats over having more and higher status. So in that case, he's kind of like the people who buy like BMWs or who go to Georgetown university in order to get status and that kind of stuff. <laughs> so he says, would you like to go on a camping trip like that? And basically everyone says no. So he says, but notice that the behaviors in the first camping trip are socialist behaviors and the behaviors in the second camping trip are capitalist behaviors. Wouldn't you rather live in like the socialist type system? And every, basically everyone says yes. Uh, even when I ask, like I've I've given this a talk about this all over the like like all over the place. Sometimes I'm talking to like you know normal people, and sometimes I'm talking to groups almost entirely composed of libertarians and classical liberals, and even like a few Randians. And uh, basically, even with those liberal classical liberal groups, everyone says they prefer the so-called socialist version of the camping trip to the capitalist version. So Cohen's like, aha, you're all deep down socialist. So Cohen's final bit is to say, wouldn't it be nice if we could make the entire world be like that socialist camping trip? Put aside the question of whether it's feasible for a second. Just ask, would it be good if we could? Like if I could wave a magic wand and turn the world into something like that, would you want me to wave it? And almost everyone says yes. And we recognize that things can be desirable even if they're not, strictly speaking, feasible. Like it'd be great if I had the force. It'd be great if I could snap my fingers and cure the COVID-19 uh, disease. It would be great if uh, you know war ended tomorrow, even though those things are not likely or some, might not even be physically possible. So Cohen's like, that's what's going on with this. But we should be very careful when we say, why isn't socialism feasible? And there's two kinds of reasons. So one is the calculation problem um, of, of socialism, the idea that in order to have economic cooperation on a mass scale, you need to have some kind of market. Now, Cohen actually concedes that. He says that that's correct. Uh, so for that reason, though, he says we should do what's called the Karen's market after uh, Joseph Karen's Canadian uh, philosopher. Uh, he says, well, we should have markets and have 
firms compete on each other in the market, but then all of that money is all their profits are then redistributed equally among everybody. So we have market competition, but we have equal distribution. And he says, if people were morally flawless, that wouldn't be a problem. So, so the second thing is then to say like, well, why doesn't socialism work is because in real life people are jerks. Like Cohen, Cohen admits that he even wrote a book about why he's a jerk. It's called, if you're an egalitarian, why, how come you're so rich? You know, it's like right, you're an right. egalitarian Cohen, but you live the high life. You're much richer than other people and you barely give any of your money away to help others. Well, why not? So he wrote a whole book about that. Why he basically why Jerry Cohen's a jerk. Uh, so he says, like, we have to keep in mind that just because people won't do something doesn't mean they could. It would be easy for me to get on right now and donate $50,000 to help other people. I'm just not going to because I'm not very nice. Uh, it would be easy for world leaders never to start another unjust war, but they won't because they're bad. It would be easy for – like if you said people shouldn't rape one another, it's easy for them not to. They could all stop doing it right now, which is predictably they won't. So he says just because people refuse to do something doesn't mean they can't do it. The things that socialism demands of people are within everybody's abilities. They just choose not to do them because they are morally flawed. So that's it. He's like, okay, now you're all socialist. You recognize that your arguments about the infeasibility of socialism are basically misplaced. Um, we should have some sort of worldwide market socialism, and that would be the morally right thing. And one thing that, that you talked about in the book, obviously, that, that Cohen does is that he directly associates some of the good qualities that we would talk about and appreciate in other people d directly with socialism, or at least socialist sentiments. Uh, you broke them down as like the socialist equality of opportunity uh, principle and the socialist principle of community. Like These are things that he's saying, this is a socialist principle, compassion, neighborliness, the things you just talked about, kindness, and whereas capital has the every man for himself values going for it. And, and of course, later on, you talk about how that's not necessarily the case. These aren't values that we can directly attach with certain systems, obviously, because there's people behind these systems. So then you go on and illustrate your own sort of parody, which is the, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse village discussion. Yeah, that's right. So in order to try to illustrate what's wrong, his argument sounds very persuasive, but there's something wrong with it. Um, so to illustrate what's wrong with it, I wrote, I my second chapter is literally a parody of his book. Uh, I often just take entire paragraphs of his and change a couple words. There's an interesting issue about getting this like through, uh, like, is it, does it count as fair use um, in terms of like legal, uh, like citation and so on? And it does. But I take paragraphs of his and just change the words. But I have people imagine like a contrary situation. So I realized like years ago, like back when Cohen was still alive, what the essential flaw was, but I didn't know how to make the argument really go through. The flaw of his argument is he's comparing ideal socialism where he's stipulating that everybody is morally perfect to what he takes to be a realistic depiction of capitalism. So if he says socialism plus perfect virtue is better than capitalism plus realistic virtue, uh, that seems true to me. But does it follow that socialism is therefore better than capitalism? We don't know because he's manipulating two variables at once, the type of economic and social system plus the degree of virtue he's stipulating. What we want to know is would ideal capitalism be better than ideal socialism and would realistic capitalism be better than realistic socialism and cohen actually concedes that realistic capitalism is better than realistic socialism so i was i knew that but i wasn't sure what would a description of ideal capitalism look like and i was watching uh tv with my at the time one and a half year old son keaton uh and the mickey mouse clubhouse show which he loved came on and i realized that they had a picture of what ideal capitalism looks like so here's how the parody goes um Imagine that Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Donald Duck, Daisy Duck, Professor Von Drake, Clarabelle Cow, Goofy Dog, and a few other characters all live together in a village. We'll call it the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse Village. It's not actually named on the show. And this village is 
robustly capitalist. Um, it has both communal and non-communal spaces. So the roads apparently seem to be commonly owned and commonly provided for, but there's an amphitheater that appears to be collectively owned. But they also have private spaces. People own their own houses. They own their own cars. And they also own the means of production. Clarabelle Cow has her own uh, Moo Mart uh, sundry store. She has a Moo Muffin factory. Uh, Minnie Mouse owns a boutique bow store and Daisy Duck works for her. Um, Donald Duck is a farmer. Uh, Willie the Giant is also a private farmer. Professor Von Drake owns some nanotech machinery. And in this situation, they sometimes give each other stuff, but they also buy and trade and sell things on real markets. Now, if you watch the show, there's nothing that anyone could really complain about in terms of morality. There's there's one character who's in the actual show who's like sometimes acts badly, but then he always like reforms at the end. But he could write him out. He's just there to illustrate moral lessons for toddlers. But otherwise, it's like utopian. It's so utopian they don't have any form of government because they don't need any kind of private private or public enforcement of the norms. Uh, if people like get a little bit too energetic about stuff, like a quick word is all it takes, but they don't have any police force. Um, so they, even though they have collectively owned things, it's all anarcho, that part's anarcho-socialist and the rest is anarcho-capitalist. They live under principles of social justice because the type of economic system they have ensures that everyone gets enough. And if anybody falls through the cracks, everyone spontaneously comes together to give them what they need. They live under principles of respect and tolerance. They accept and, re- and not just accept one another's differences, but delight in the differences of others. They don't suffer from the kind of racism and misogyny that you see in the real world. So, for instance, D- Goofy Dog and Clarable Cow are dating, but no one has any problem with that and say that it's miscegenation or something. They're, they're totally fine with it. Uh, <laughs> they're benevolent. They always work to one another's benefit, but no one acts to uh, take advantage of this benevolence. But nevertheless, they're robustly capitalist. To say, this sounds great. And I said, now I want you to imagine that this society becomes socialist. It starts exhibiting the kinds of behaviors we see in real life socialism. So imagine that Mickey Mouse uh, becomes a dictator and he uh, you know, nationalizes the farmland. But when he does so, the other, the other farmers try to resist. So he kills them and has them starved or and sends others to murder them. Imagine that they censor uh, information and enemies of the state are sent to gulags to where they're made to work to death. And the gulags are so horrible that people will voluntarily chop off their own body parts so they can die in the hospitals rather than have to work to death in the mines. Imagine that because the system doesn't work, there's massive amounts of stagnation. So over a 60-year period, even though GDP numbers might be manipulated to look better, the actual standard of living barely moves or actually gets worse for most people. And it's particularly bad for the poor workers that it's supposed to be best for. Suppose that uh, in order to maintain the power of the system, Mickey Mouse ends up killing, say, 20% or 33% of the entire population, especially all the intellectuals, the way that, say, Pol Pot did in Cambodia. Well, we probably wouldn't let our kids watch that sort of show. I would hope not. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I mean, I, I, that sounds pretty interesting to me. I might watch it, but uh, I wouldn't right. let my kids watch it. Right. So I say, and then I asked the reader, I'm like, well, which would you rather live under the capitalist version of the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which is wonderful and everyone's prospering and happy, or the socialist version, which is a moral catastrophe? And everyone says the capitalist version, including, by the way, when I ask, uh, I, I give talks about this in front of a bunch of like left wing professors, they all unanimously pick the capitalist version. But then people say, well, hold on here, though. Right. Um, this isn't really fair because what you did was you had us imagine a capitalist economic system and you stipulated everyone had perfect moral virtue. And then you compared that to 
what happens in real life socialism where it's you know a disaster and people prey upon one another. So it's not really fair. You're not really showing capitalism is better. You're just showing that virtue makes the system better. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. That's exactly what Jerry Cohen did. So if you're a socialist and you hear my parody and you go, that's unfair. I'm not being unfair. I'm showing you what's wrong with Cohen's argument. It's a system plus perfect virtue doesn't necessarily show us that the system is better. It might be the virtue doing the work. Um, and one other thing to notice, sometimes I've given a talk about this, and this goes back to your last uh, point, and I'll describe the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse in uh, in further detail. And I remember one time a, a professor raised his hand and said, hold on, that system's socialist. And I'm like, well, why is it socialist? He's like, well, because they're nice to each other. And it's like, that's <laughs> philosophers, you know, philosophers are supposed to be good at philosophy, but they generally aren't. I think economists tend to be better at it than philosophers are. It's, it's kind of a dumb analysis. Uh, socialism is not by definition, love and kindness and sweetness and oceans of right. delicious lemonade. Socialism is an economic system in which uh, people are forbidden to own privately, including private groups like, you know, joint stock companies are forbidden to own the means of production and the means of production have to be owned by everyone or more realistically by the state as the representative of everyone. And a system is capitalist to the extent that the means of production can be privately owned, including the kinds of collectives we see in capitalism and joint stock companies. Socialism means that uh, economic decisions are made collectively. Uh, so capitalism means economic decisions are made by everybody. That's the difference. It's an institutional description, and it's an open empirical question whether certain moral virtues are compatible with different systems, and further, whether these systems exacerbate or promote these kinds of virtues. So just because people are nice to each other doesn't mean they're socialist. Right. Socialism is institutional description. And you identified these as basically the two Cohen fallacies, and I really like that in the book. So you talked about, you already talked about one, which was the comparing the ideal to the real. That's Cohen fallacy number one. And number two was identifying regimes with values or motives. And I think regardless of what side of, let's say, a socialism and capitalism debate you're on, a lot of people fall into this trap, and that's something that bugs me, is that even the reverse will happen, right? Especially, like, think about America during the Cold War. A lot of people have identified capitalism with the pure motives, you know, and then they would say, oh, but the USSR is flawed. And then they're comparing an ideal to a real again. So I really liked how in the book, you basically said, okay, here's what everyone needs to do. You need to be comparing ideal to ideal or real to real to have any form of a logical discussion or get anywhere really. Otherwise, you're just spinning your wheels with other people loading up their own ideas and ideals into this weird nebulous cloud, basically. And then you're just debating with that, which is not yeah, helpful. That's right. And, and everybody does. It's true. Like, I don't have a problem with so-called ideal theorizing. I think if you want to ask, what would a perfectly just society look like? Then you have to stipulate, I want to imagine people who are themselves perfectly just and mm. always do the right thing. That's right. totally fair to me. And I think if you're a philosopher, there's reasons to do that kind of work. But you just have to be really careful of saying something like you point to a realistic system and say, here's what's wrong with that in the real world. And then you imagine an alternative where everything goes exactly the way that you want. Uh, that's not really all that helpful because, you know, if you're talking about what to do in the real world, you have to deal with the fact that people are morally flawed. They engage in strategic noncompliance, that they um, will try to game your system. Um, and so you have to ask in the real world, which policies and institutions will produce the best outcomes and the most justice given how people are. And then if you want to do the, the ideal theory asking what a perfectly just system is, then you have to compare institutions while keeping constant the idea that people are perfectly virtuous. And, and you know, Cohen, it, it's weird because Cohen just doesn't see that that's really his mistake. Um, it never even occurred to him, I guess, like that like to think about what an ideal capitalist system was because he almost defined it by definition as moral deprivation and greed and selfishness. And you wouldn't, a socialist wouldn't accept that on behalf of someone else. Like if I were a capitalist and someone described 
Cohen system. And I said, oh, no, that's that's not actually a socialist system. That's capitalist because in socialism, people prey upon one another. So if they're being nice to each other, that's capitalist. They'd right. be like, what the hell are you talking about? But that's what he's doing. Right. No, no, nobody would accept that kind of comparison when you're talking about a capitalist society at all if they were a socialist. Nobody would say, no, no, in capitalism, we cooperate. We go to work every day. Our boss is just trying to fulfill the interest of the company. But beyond that, he has no bad motives. Like nobody would accept that kind of thing if they were a socialist. Yeah. So real quick, though, I think we and we touched on it a few times, but I want to make sure that the listeners and hear from you exactly what when we're talking about in the ideal space, what socialism and capitalism means to you as, as like definition wise, and maybe go into that a little bit, because I think that, again, you've touched on it a few times as you've been talking about what socialism and capitalism is. But I definitely want to just take a section here to do that, because I think that those terms have a weakness, not in and of themselves, but people put the weakness on them where depending what conversation you're in, people will define them differently. Even if they're not trying to do ideal versus real discussion, they're still saying, oh, capitalism is like the United States and you know, socialism was the USSR. And then that's not really helpful either. So what's capitalism? What's socialism, at least on the ideal level that you're comparing in the book? Yeah, good. Uh, you know, Honestly, it's very hard to define these things because mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. the typical the typical terms you see in economics are not quite right. So right. the typical economist is going to say, a socialist system is a system in which productive property, factory, capital goods that are used to make other goods are owned collectively um, by everybody. And But then the question is, in realist, realistically, do we ever see socialist systems like that? Usually the capital goods are actually owned by the state or they're partially privatized and so on. But that's supposed to be what it is. It's that the productive goods are owned collectively. Most socialists say you can own some property for yourself. They're fine with you maybe having a house as long as you don't rent the house for money. They're fine with you having a bunch of guitars as long as you're like me and you lose money on your guitars, not like Eddie Van Halen who makes money on his guitars. You can have a car as long as you don't like use it as a taxi or rent it or something like that. So they're they're okay with you having your own toothbrush and your own shirts, but anything that you use to make other stuff, anything that's used productively has to be owned collectively. Um, and I have a, uh, a socialist colleague at uh, Georgetown, by the way, totally vicious, horrible human being. Um, so <laughs> he certainly in an ideal society, he this guy would not exist. Uh, but his view is that like, well, I asked him one time, like, what about like a shovel? Can I own a shovel? Like, so I can like dig up a hole in my backyard. He's like, no, no, the shovels have to stay like in like a shed that's owned collectively and you have to like sign them out or something. So that's how far he goes. Uh, so that's supposed to be socialism. And then that it's just an institutional description. It's a set of rules. What are the rules governing the use of material goods? That's the fundamental aspect of what makes something socialist. Further, there's other there's open questions within socialist socialism about how you're going to redistribute wealth and like what the sharing of wealth will be. So different socialists can take different stances on that. But right. generally speaking, socialists have some idea that people should be relatively equal in uh, the amount of stuff that they enjoy and the welfare that they have. Um, that's all intramural debate within socialism. Uh, capitalist says capitalism is a system in which people are permitted to own pr- the means of production privately, but privately doesn't have to mean individually. So you can own them individually. You can own them in a partnership. You can have a closely held uh, company, but it could also mean something like a joint stock company where, you know, I own, I sort of own a bunch of different companies out there, but I own them through stocks or really I own them through mutual funds, which, uh, which are in turn own various stocks. Uh, so even in capitalism, you have actual collective ownership of the means of production, but it's not literally the entire collective. And in a capitalist system, um, 
economic decisions can be made by individuals. You get to choose what you consume, where you're going to work, and so on uh, with partnership with others when they voluntarily choose it. So socialism takes economic decisions and makes them done by a collective or perhaps by a state or something uh, which is supposed to represent that collective. And capitalism has lots and lots and lots of decision makers who are making smaller decisions about smaller aspects of the economy, and they end up working together through the kind of market system. So that's supposed to be the difference between them. That's how economists would describe it. Uh, if your philosophers sometimes jump back and forth between these institutional descriptions and moralized descriptions where they describe it in terms of like motives and so on. But right. that's that's probably a mistake. Instead, it's a it's an empirical question to what degree these institutions foster or under uh, undermine various kinds of virtues. And actually, on that very point, uh, one of the things I point out to Cohen is, well, actually, there's a lot of research on this issue. Um, so for example, Herbert Gintis is a famous economist and back in the 60s, he was a Marxist. He wanted to prove that Marx was right, that commodification and markets corrupt our values and make us more selfish. They lead to a hypertrophy of selfishness and so on. So he set out to do all these experiments demonstrating that, and he's not a Marxist anymore in part because the experiments went the other way. So mm. what he found, so here's some of the experiments that he and others have done. Uh, you put people in a situation where you can play the prisoner's dilemma against each other. I assume most people know what that is. It's a game where you have the opportunity to cheat or cooperate with the other person. Then the question is what things will influence whether you cheat or cooperate. There's a game called the trust game where without getting into the details of it, uh, it's a game that measures do you trust another player and if you trust them, are they worthy of your trust? There's a game called dictator where you give people money and you give them the opportunity to unanimously decide to share it with another player and it measures are you unconditionally generous? There's another game called the ultimatum game, which measures, are you willing to share with others? And if you're not, are those people willing to incur a personal sacrifice to punish you for what they regard as unfair behavior? So these games test things like trustworthiness, propensity to share, propensity to be trusting, propensity to uh, be unconditionally generous, and so on. And Joseph Henrik, Herbert Gintis, a number of other people have played these games all around the world. And one of the things they've asked is, how does the background economic system that you come from affect your behavior in these games? And the answer is, the more capitalist the country it is that you come from, the nicer you are. Hmm. Like the more fair you are, the more generous, the more um, trusting and trustworthy, et cetera, you are. If you come from a non-capitalist society, whether it's a traditional society or some sort of socialist society, you actually play much worse. So that's one set of evidence, but there's other studies like this as well. So contrary to what Cohen thinks, Cohen says capitalism makes us selfish. It makes us meaner. It makes us less caring and more callous. Actually, the available empirical evidence strongly goes the other way in that real-life capitalist systems make people morally nicer, and real-life socialist systems make people much worse. Yeah, we actually we had Kevin Vallier on uh, a few episodes ago, and he was talking about ultimately the types of frameworks that create social trust and that that's really the most important thing rather than what framework you're under. I mean, obviously, the, in a different kind of discussion, he would talk about what a framework that would be ideal would be to him. But that kind of strikes me as interesting. I just connected that dot in my head that, you know, that's really what we want to talk about, the frameworks that create social trust, cooperation, and the good values we're talking about, not to say that socialism means neighborliness and capitalism means every man for himself. That's not helpful again. Yeah. I mean, if a socialist doesn't like that and they want to point to the uh, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which I think is an anarcho-capitalist society and Cohen would think is anarcho-capitalist. They go, they're nice to each other. They're socialism. I'm like, hey, man, if you love my system so much, you want to use your word for it. That's great. I still win. You know, yeah. like it doesn't, doesn't matter to me. If you're like, I hate heavy metal. My favorite band is Metallica, but they're, they're, uh, they're country. I'll be like, whatever. You're just using the language in a weird way. Right. Like, we agree on the, we agree on the thing at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. But there, it's worth noting that, uh, 
in the book, I don't really get into the question of disparate values between Cohen and me, like what we disagree with value-wise, but it is worth noting that there's actually some deep ugliness to the moral values that Cohen has. Uh, I think I think really like, you know, he he and he's kind of careful about this. He says you can like the socialist camping trip, but not necessarily agree with my philosophy of what's going on there. But he says the socialist principles that I espouse are ones that require perfect equality. And the argument he ends up making, it's only partly there in his book. It's partly in other books. You have to look through multiple readings to re- find it, is that in a perfectly socialist society, we will have perfect equality because if there's a difference between us in terms of income, we will not be fully in community with one another. We will not fully be able to empathize with each other. And and his argument is something like, all right, well, imagine uh, – I, I normally take a car to work. I mean, I, I work from home. <laughs> back, back when I used to go to an office uh, or go to a, a campus, uh, I took a car. But imagine my car broke down and my other car broke down and I had to take the bus or the subway or something like that. Uh, and then I talk to the other people on there who take it every day and I say, oh, it sucks. I have to drive, go on the bus. I wouldn't really empathize with them and they wouldn't empathize with me because we have these differences in income and lifestyles. And Cohen is so strict about this that he says even a $100 difference would do it. So he says, mm. imagine like you and I have a bet with one another. We're going to flip a coin. If it comes up heads, I give you $100. If it comes up tails, you give me $100. You know, it comes up tails. So uh, I actually forget which way I'm going to go. You give me $100. And uh, and now I'm $100 richer than you. Uh, and we both liked taking the bet. We both would be willing to make that bet again. But now I'm richer than you. He says that would destroy the community between us. So I said to Cohen, if $100 difference in income is enough to make it so we're not fully in community with one another, and then therefore you, Jerry Cohen, would forbid even that level of inequality, then I don't see how you're going to allow for any differences in religion or differences in taste in music or differences in taste in lifestyle or differences in beliefs about, uh, you know, what counts constitutes a good life or, or talent. Uh, yeah, or talent or so on. Because obviously these things are going like if you're a Protestant and I'm Catholic, that's going to divide us much more than, say, having a hundred dollar difference in income. Or if you're Muslim and I'm Catholic, that's going to divide us even more. Or if you're an atheist and I'm Catholic, that's going to divide us even more. So Cohen wants to be a liberal socialist who allows for diversity of lifestyle. But if he's saying that a hundred dollar difference in income is enough to destroy community and socialism cannot permit that, then I don't see how a form of socialism can tolerate other sorts of lifestyle differences, which uh, destroy community even more. And even if he takes it back and says, okay, not a hundred dollars, $15,000, fine. But I'll tell you what, like one person being a devout Catholic and another being a like a uh, hardcore atheist is going to s- create more of a division between them than a $15,000 income difference. So sure. once again, Cohen, whatever, wherever line you want to draw it in terms of inequality, you can find an analog to that that has nothing to do with income inequality, but something about differences in beliefs or attitudes or lifestyle, which will create an even greater difference. And in virtue of the argument you've made, Cohen, you have to forbid that. So I think Cohen is stuck here where he wants to be a liberal socialist, but in order to have his argument be consistent, he ends up having to advocate you know, the Borg. Yeah, basically, yeah. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take a break. Uh, we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're on The Curious Task, and we're speaking with Jason Brennan. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Sabine Elchidiak, Travis Smith, and Vincent Geloso. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jason Brennan. Jason, uh, we talked about a lot in the first half. We're going to move on to some other things, but I'd, I'd like to kick off the second half with a quote here. Uh, you know, I'll quote you back to you, basically. You said in your book, Cohen spent his life arguing about how community and fellow feeling are the highest values, yet he did little to investigate what actually helps promote them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really re- I respect Cohen. I think he was a very good philosopher. I think he was much better as a critic of other philosophers than he was as mm. a defender of his own ideas. Uh, so I think he he, is, he has a book that just trashes Rawls, and I think he's really good at it. He has a book that tries to trash Nozick, and I think he miss, swings and misses, but there's still really interesting stuff in there. But one thing I find puzzling about Cohen is his just lack of empirical curiosity. Uh, he's a lot of political philosophers are people who spend their lives analyzing concepts and trying to make various kinds of moral arguments, but they never learn anything about sociology or economics or political science. And they, and even if they do know this stuff, they think it has no bearing on the kind of work that they do. And Cohen even wrote a book that was trying to argue that like empirical facts don't have any bearing on what we do in political philosophy, though what he means by that is something pretty precise. And in a way, he might be right about that. Yeah, but it's just, it's interesting that Cohen wasn't interested in looking at how do different economic systems affect people's character. It's just, he was taught at mother's knee. I mean, I'm not making fun of him. This is true. He was like, he went to socialist summer camp in Montreal and like was brought up in like, you know, to be a socialist. He actually wrote a book about like that question, like, Hey, the fact that I was like raised from birth to be socialist, um, does, should that make me like question my own degree of socialism in the same way that a person who's been raised from birth to be a Christian and ends up becoming a devout Christian should wonder if it's just an accident of their birth. And he's like, nah, that's nah, fine. <laughs> so, uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, he, he just wasn't interested in looking into this question at all. Like, well, how do different kinds of economic and political systems affect people's virtue? Uh, it's just Marx said it makes us more selfish, so he must be right about that. And then that's not, I mean, as you were saying, it, it, we have to look at how actually people end up with certain values. We can't just say this system has that, these certain values and this system doesn't have these certain values. And ultimately, so you talk about uh, towards the end of the book, after you're done the parody and you're, and you're done setting up the argument and then through the parody criticizing it you talk about that at the end of the day capitalism is utopia and is utopian so we talked a bit about that in the first half let's get into that now private property in utopia again you touched on it but how exactly can we create a utopia out of a bunch of private property i'm just trying to think of someone listening to this fresh that might not be on board with your ideas that's saying okay well how how does that work? I, I've been exposed to all these ideas that tell me that that makes people more selfish, more greedy, et cetera. Yeah. What does society look like with private property as utopia? Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, it's going to look like the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse Village. Uh, so the question is, why why would the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse Village have private property? They do. What's the point of it? Why do they have markets rather than dispensing with markets? So in order to show that uh, utopia is capitalist, you have to explain why they use markets and why they have private property. Um, so for, first, it's worth noting what private property really is. Uh, fundamentally, the you know if you think of private property as a bundle of rights, it's a collection of different rights together. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fundamental central right is the right of exclusion. If I say I own this guitar, what I mean is there's this piece of the universe which I'm for some reason allowed to forbid the rest of you from using. You can't use it or interact with it or touch it unless you get my permission. Um, it also usually includes in the way we own different things in different ways, but often private property rights include a presumptive permission for the owner to use it as they see fit, for the owner to sell it for, for uh, money, to rent it for money, in some cases to destroy it. I mean, I'm not allowed to destroy my dog, but I am allowed to destroy my guitars. Uh, 
it, to modify it again i'm not allowed to like tattoo my dog's face but i can like you know take my expensive guitars and like put stickers on right. them if i want to uh and then further it, uh, these right it imposes obligations on others you have an obligation to respect it to not touch it if you damage it you're supposed to pay me back etc and it also includes a right of enforcement that if you do violate these things and i'm allowed to do certain things to try to like collect back against you so the question then is well why would we want private property in utopia and this is a complicated question because the arguments for private property that you get in economics classes many of them simply do not apply so economists will say things like we have to privatize property because if everything is held collectively, people will overuse it and destroy it. It will lead to a tragic commons. Um, people don't take care of things unless it's privatized. That's that's correct uh, in almost every case, but that does not apply in utopian conditions because we're stipulating that everybody is morally flawless and always does the right thing. So in a private in utopian conditions, there is no tragedy of the commons. Uh, and so, so you have to come up with different kinds of, or you people say we need private property to motivate people to work. That's true in real life, but it's not true in utopian conditions. Cause again, we're imagining everyone has perfect moral virtue and will do the right thing. So you have to have different kinds of reasons. Why would people want private property? Um, they're a bit more high minded, a bit more highfalutin to some degree, but they're nevertheless, I think reasons that Cohen himself recognizes. So I say to Cohen something like, Hey, when you write a paper, uh, when you'd go to write like a philosophy paper, uh, you didn't always write your papers collectively. In fact, you didn't collaborate very much with others at all. You would write your own private papers um, that, that written by you, published by you with your name on them. You didn't do socialist production of philosophy papers. Well, why not? And the reason that he would give is, you know, I have my own ideas that I want to see implemented and I want to try them out my way. I want to have control over that stuff so I can be authentic to myself. And I say, that sounds perfectly reasonable. And that's true of songwriters and artists and others. But it's also true of people who want to run businesses. Like it's important to uh, Clarabel Cow that she gets to make muffins her way and try selling them the way that she wants and see if other people want them that way. It's important to Minnie Mouse that she be able to make her own bows. It's not enough for her simply to take part in a collective bow production, but she is an entrepreneur and has an idea for how bows should be made. And she wants to test that idea on the market. So in the same way that like a socialist can understand why an artist might not want to have all art made by democratic vote or a philosopher might not want all their papers written by democratic vote, they can see with a little bit of empathy, which they usually lack. But if they were better people with a little bit of empathy, they could see why people who do things like plumbing or carpentry or bow manufacturing or guitar manufacturing might want to make things their way as well rather than having it be made collectively. Um, another thing is that, you know, we're living in a material world and I am a material girl. What I mean by that is that pursuing pro human beings like get meaning out of their life by pursuing projects over a long term. And part of the having the uh, possibility of pursuing these projects means having access to material goods that you can rely on being a certain way when you leave them. You know, so it's like I have guitar amps and uh, I want to and guitars and so on. I want to know that when I come back to them. They're going to be tuned the way that I like them and set up the way that I like, and the knobs are going to be just right and so on. It would be really stink if like all the stuff were collectively owned, and every time I wanted to use it, I had to wait to get my turn, and then I had to uh, readjust things to my liking. And that would be true even if I really loved everyone else who I was sharing it with. It's nice to have your own stuff. And Cohen completely accepts that. He says that's precisely why people should be allowed to own private personal property even in utopia. 
But again, the question is, well, why limit it simply to personal property? Why wouldn't that also apply to productive property when people are making things? Right, right. Yeah. And now some of the arguments that he might make about productive property are, oh, well, if people are allowed to own private property productively, then they'll exploit one another or they'll take advantage of market failures or they'll act badly. And yes, in the real world, that is true. They would. And it's also true in the real world that in socialist systems, they exploit one another, in fact, even more. But under ideal conditions, the sorts of objections that socialists have to capitalism simply no longer apply. There is no exploitation. There is no uh, taking advantage of asymmetric information to bamboozle a customer. There's no deception. There's none of this stuff because by hypothesis, people are perfect. Okay, I was, I was going to say one thing, One thing though, that I really like that you said just a few minutes earlier, though, is about people pursuing projects through the materials that they have. And I think that's really key. And I think it's important to stop there because what a lot of people, at least I find, do is that when they talk about... Um, consumerism and consumption and yes admitted like there is a lot of you know conspicuous consumption and people will just consume things and have them i think people do have that quote-unquote disease that's a whole separate conversation though but ultimately for the most part for the most part i really do feel that people are using these materials as you said for other ends they're not just hoarding guitar amps in their house because they like to fiddle with the knobs i'm assuming you get enjoyment out of practicing your music for instance so i I think that's really key because a lot of people will talk about oh yeah you know people just want to consume things and and gain materials and and then a lot of people who are socialists will say well, that's bad. You know, this is just rampant consumerism and people just want to own things for the sake of it. But I, I don't really think that's the real case when we get to real life. People, you will find some people, but most people, at least that I know, aren't just consuming things for the sake of having them in their house. Yeah. Crass consumerism is always something other people do. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the socialists I know are all very materialistic people and have all sorts of things and get money and use it. But the way they use it, of course, is in reasonable ways that fulfill their lives and make them happier. It's just they look at the stuff that other people do with their money and they're like, well, I don't personally dig that. So it must be just stupid, uh, unthinking consumerism. They're applying their own value judgment to that type of consumption. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, but keep in mind, too, that uh, originally originally the point of socialism was to make everybody rich. Mm-hmm. Like when you read 18th century, I'm sorry, 19th century uh, socialists, they're like, socialism will be better than capitalism because it'll ensure everybody has material abundance, not just the few. It wasn't really until it became clear that socialism wasn't making people rich, that you saw socialists transforming into the ah, materialism sucks kind of people. Uh, and, and, you know, we have higher values. Originally it was about let's make the poor rich. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think there's something to be said about like, if you're the kind of person where you can only be happy with like trinkets and baubles and you need constantly need more trinkets and baubles, maybe there is something defective about you, but that's not something special to capitalism. It's not clear that it happens more in capitalism anyways. Right. But we're talking about people have ideas in their head they want to have realized and they want to experiment with them and run their own lives their own way. And it's important actually for that reason that you have a market because uh, an analogy I like to use is if you've like take the 1990s version of uh, Great Expectations in film form with uh, Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, to give away the plot of that movie, um, it's a little bit different from the book, so I'll use the movie version. Uh, Finn, when he's young, rescues this convict. Uh, the convict's escape. He helps him escape, and then his life continues, and at some point he becomes an artist. And he starts making art, and he starts selling it, and mysteriously all of his art is selling. It's all being sold really quickly, and he's making a lot of money, and he feels really happy. And then he finds out that what's actually happening is not that everyone's buying his art, but rather the person, the convict that he helped when he was a child, wants to repay him. So the thing that he's doing is buying all of Finn's art. He's been his secret benefactor. 
When Finn discovers this, he is devastated. He's not happy. He's devastated. And it makes perfect sense why. Because what he learned is he's this guy is buying my art as a favor to me. He's not buying it because he thinks the art is good. He's not buying it because he wants it for his own sake. He's buying it to say, I like you. And if you're a person who makes things, you don't want that. And it's, I mean, you do want the money. It's better to that than that to be uh, hungry. But um, you want people to buy the stuff that you make because they think it's good, because they want it for themselves. So if Minnie discovers that people are only buying her bows because they're like, Minnie, we think your bows are awful. We would never buy these for our own for their own sake. But we love you, Minnie, so much. We're going to spend our money on the bows and then we'll just put them in a box and never use them. That's basically the market telling her she stinks at bow making. So that's another reason why people – they actually want other people to be selfish in this respect in order to validate the value of what they're doing. Right. To throw some Adam Smith in there, you know, you want to be loved but also lovely, right? People want to – you actually want to be worthy of that love. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there are a, bunch of, a couple of different reasons like this why you'd want private property in Utopia. Uh, and then the question, but what about markets? Why do we want those? So there's a couple of different sets of reasons. One is uh, we – insofar as possible, we want people to be authors of their own lives, uh, I think Cohen recognizes that when it comes to civil liberties. We want people to be able to choose their own religion, their own beliefs, with whom they associate, um, the kind of lifestyles that they lead, the sorts of consumption they engage in when it comes to like non, you know, non-productive property. We want people to decide for themselves who they're going to be. Uh, so he's that's why he's a liberal socialist rather than a uh, illiberal socialist. So that's true, but we also I think we want to apply that to market decisions as well. How we spend our money, how we invest, what we what we do this or that. These are things that give us control over our own lives. And insofar as we can have that, we want it. Now, socialists would usually chime in here and say, yeah, but if we give people individuals this economic liberty, it will have all these negative effects. But in it's a question of whether that's true in the real world, but a lot of their, again, their objections to capitalism about how it will have certain problems do not apply under ideal conditions. We're imagining everyone to be perfectly virtuous. The other thing is that markets serve the common good, and Cohen himself accepts this. This is why he advocates market socialism rather than uh, true command economy socialism. Um, so my illustration of this is to say, imagine I have a magic wand that if I wave it will make everybody 30 times richer. Now, Cohen would want me to wave that magic wand. He's a leveling up socialist. He says, I don't want everyone to be equal but poor. I want everyone to be equal and rich. And the reason I want them to be rich is that money is power and power is freedom. What he means – so he, this is from him. He says, if you think about what a $20 bill is in your wallet, it's a ticket to the world. The more of that money you have or the wealth that it represents, the more you can do with your life, the more you can choose to be a lead a life that's authentically yours. So you can listen to different kinds of music. So you can travel different kinds of places and so on. So he'd want people to have that – me to wave that magic wand. Now suppose instead of there being a magic wand, there's a philosopher queen. And what she does is she comes up with an economic plan where she says, I'm going to give everybody like three options of different kinds of jobs they can do. I don't want to like force them into something. But if you choose to work in according to my plan, then uh, we'll all become 30 times richer. It will be like waving that magic wand. Well, Cohen would say if we're good people, we would all voluntarily go along with her plan because we want other people to be rich and have that freedom. But unfortunately, economics tells us there will never be any such philosopher queen right. because – of the calculation problem of socialism. However, it turns out that markets are, in a sense, a surrogate for the philosopher queen or the magic wand. The forces of supply and demand, uh, the information contained within prices, do the work of coordinating us in much the way that philosopher queen would. 
Now, in the real world, they do it imperfectly, but they still do it pretty well. But in an ideal world, many kinds of market failures that are based upon bad behavior simply would not exist. So for that reason, Mickey Mouse would want to participate in a market, not simply to benefit himself, but because he knows that on the other side of the world, there are distant strangers who will benefit from this kind of mass cooperation that is existing in a market. Markets are systems of mass cooperation. Right. So that's one. So that's another reason to use a market. And here, here's really the final argument, uh, the, the argument that just, I think, kills it. Uh, at the end, I ask people, okay, I've given you a lengthy description of the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse Village, and I've given you a lengthy description of Cohen's camping trip. Which one would you prefer to live under? And so not surprisingly, when I ask like, libertarians and classical liberals this, I get almost unanimous uh, unanimously in favor of the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse Village, but I've also given versions of this talk to, um, you know, thousands of like philosophers and like left-wing people and almost unanimously, they pick the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse Village mm -hmm. over the ca socialist camping trip. Hardly anyone picks the camping trip, um, which is interesting, right? So that's one reason like, well, which would you prefer? And almost everyone picks it. But the funny thing is that that's, uh, it's actually a trick question because, um, a, an ideal social, an ideal capitalist system permits socialism within its borders. Right. The Mickey Mouse Clubhouse would have no problem with the Smurfs moving in and having a little commune. Uh, if the Smurfs want to live communally, that's totally fine. If you want to have a kibbutz inside of a greater capitalist system, that's totally fine as long as you tolerate kind of a bigger capitalist superstructure around it. And in fact, in actual capitalism, you see pockets of socialism for this reason. Um, families might have socialist principles within the family, even though they interact with other society, uh, the rest of society on capitalist principles. You might have things that are collectively owned here and there. You might have clubs that form that own things collectively. So one, capitalism is better than socialism in part because it doesn't actually make you choose. Uh, for some people, a socialist lifestyle is better and capitalism permits that. For others, it's not. And so Cohen's big problem is that when he tries to imagine utopia, he has a very narrow view of what utopia would be. It has to be exactly this way. And in reality, I think what Robert Nozick says in Anarchy State and Utopia is correct. And I think Cohen inadvertently has helped to vindicate Nozick on this point. Hmm. Nozick says that utopia is not the same thing for everybody. Different people have different values, and that's okay. And we want what we want is kind of a libertarian superstructure that permits people to create different kinds of voluntary communities within it, and people can join whatever community they want, and they can leave it when they want to, and then whatever these communities have through consent is permitted, and that's what we should have. And that might include, so you have an overall capitalist system, but then like the uh, superstructure I'm sorry, the individual things within it might be non-capitalistic. The way you summed it up and the way I really like that in the book at the end is you said it's one way to consider it is utopian capitalism is in fact the framework for other utopias or smaller utopias. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, right. So in the end, when you ask people, why is capitalism better than socialism on the ideal level? It's in part because um, it doesn't make you choose. It's, it's right. such an open system. It lets you pick whichever one you want. Uh, whereas, you know, so Cohen's giving you like one meal and and Nozick is giving you an entire restaurant. Cohen's giving you one painting and uh, Nozick's giving you the entire art museum. Um, so it's better because it includes it. So what you get at the end of this is that Cohen starts the book by saying real life capitalism is better than real life socialism because human beings are crappy. But ideal socialism would be better than real life capitalism. I'm willing to concede that. That seems true to me. But he, ha he says, therefore, socialism is the best. He hasn't shown that because his argument is based upon a flawed comparison of an ideal system to a realistic system. So in the end, what you get is 
ideal capitalism beats ideal socialism, which beats realistic capitalism, which beats realistic socialism. So therefore, capitalism wins at every level. If you're doing utopian theory or ideal theory, capitalism wins. If you're doing realistic theory, capitalism wins. Uh, there is no moral high ground for socialists. And one thing that I liked at the end of the book, uh, the final chapter, you wrapped it up by asking people to run a bit of a thought experiment. And I really like the way you did this. You said, if you're not even convinced at this point, you have to seriously think about all the people you've known in your life or even known briefly, like people you've passed in the airport, people you've maybe waited at a bus stop with. And you ask the reader to ask themselves, can they honestly think of one lifestyle or arrangement that would be the, quote, best for all of these people? And if they can't do that, well, maybe everyone should have a framework to seek what's best for them. And I thought that was a really good way to sort of hammer it home, is that even if people weren't fully convinced by everything you wrote in the book, that they, they seriously have to ask themselves that question. Yeah. Otherwise, you get into the problem of uh, a utopian theorist who just becomes anti-diversity. Right. You think there's, everyone should be exactly the same and have the same taste and the same behaviors and like the same sorts of things and live the same kind of lifestyle. Uh, and and that's really problematic. And so Nozick's pointing that out in Anarchy, State, and Utopia. It's like what you have – the reason that every utopian theorist has a different utopia is because they're often projecting on what would be the best utopia for someone like them, and they moralize a lot of their preferences. Right. So Nozick says really it's about there should be levels of mutual respect. There should be tolerance from one another. You should, I think, have a framework which ensures that people don't fall through the cracks and they have enough, though if people are ideally good, you don't need a state to do that. Um, you can do that without a state. So like, but, but instead, you know, utopia is a framework for utopias. So say like, you know, the nice thing in the real world, capitalism incentivizes entrepreneurs to create products and services you want at prices you can afford to pay in a utopian world. It one ups that because it creates a framework for you to try to create your own personal utopia, um, with the only stipulation having to be that you have to recruit other people to it voluntarily. And if we're talking about on the economic side as well, economic utopia, we know prices are going to come down as more entrepreneurs come into the market. Hey, look at all that stuff, all those perfectly straight lines that we see on graphs when sometimes, of course, in micro 101, let's say we say, no, this is ideal. It's not real life, but here's what you need to keep in the back of your head. That would happen in a, cap a utopian capitalist society. So we're, ca we're covered on the, the moral side and, and the social side as well as the economic side if we're really going to you know run to full utopia in our thinking. Yeah. I, I think it'd be a shame, like we're, we're about done here, but I think it'd be a shame to, to quit the subject without mentioning that you don't, you definitely don't think that this is a weakness uh, in just uh, socialist thinkers. That is to say, I, I've at least personally known a lot of people who would consider themselves capital th capitalist thinkers, at least market-based thinkers, that they're they're doing the same thing from the other side. They're trying to prescribe a certain structure, not even a superstructure, but a structure of reality in society. They think, okay, if, if we could just write the constitution this way, and then, or if they're an anarchist, they wouldn't have that. We'd say, if we could just imagine society this way, this would be a great thing for everybody. This type of capitalist society would be great. And and clearly, you're also saying that from the other side, that's also the completely wrong approach, too. Oh, absolutely. I think I think almost everyone engages in this mistake where they look at an, an institution they dislike. They look at the actual flaws that it has in the real world, which are often dependent upon, you know, real world uh, vice. And then they pick an institution, they imagine an institution that solves that. And they imagine everyone perfectly complying with the rules that they've stipulated. Uh, and it's, it's just a silly way of thinking. So an example of this, I know you had a uh, Kevin, not Kevin, Valley, uh, Chris Fryman on yep. recently, who was talking he about was his on. book, Unequivocal Justice. Rawls, I mean, if you're a classical liberal, you think of him as a left-wing guy, but Rawls from Cohen's perspective is a hardcore capitalist, right? Rawls is defending a type of capitalist regime and he is, it's true. Uh, so 
Rawls, uh, in order to argue against a more radical form of socialism, what Rawls does is when he talks about his favorite form of capitalism, which he calls property-owning democracy, he imagines everyone to be morally flawless and to always comply and always do the right thing. And then when he points to um, more radical forms of socialism, he says, well, these are bad because – and then he starts talking about the bad behaviors people will have, like the state will prey upon people and forbid them from doing things and take advantage of them, exploit them and harm them, and suppress their civil liberties. So he's Rawls himself does, you know, defends the ideal version of his theory against the non-ideal versions of other theories, even though Rawls says not to do that. Like in, in the book, Justice is Fairness, a restatement, it's like I think it's like page 136 says, hey, don't make this mistake. And then page 137, he makes it. I mean, that's how I mean. Granted, he was old at that point. He'd had a stroke and stuff, maybe, and it was being edited by others. So maybe it's not entirely his <laughs> fault. But, but he like makes the mistake of like within a page of saying not to do it. Right. right. That's how bad it is. And he's a capitalist, and so capitalists do this too. Right. It's important. I think it's incredibly important to remember that. So, Jason, we we've talked about a lot. We had a great discussion. I think you provided a great summary and a great tour of all your arguments within your book. Why not capitalism? It, you know, in every episode, we want to make sure we bring it full circle and let the guests have the final word. If we could put a finer point on our exploration of the question today on everything we talked about, I'll ask you ultimately what you hope the main takeaways here are for someone listening to you on the question, why not capitalism? If we could sum up. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, with realistic people, with the flaws that we have, with the lack of virtue that we have, capitalism does a very good way of getting us to cooperate with one another and to treat us well, and it improves our character rather than demotes it. However, it's not simply a good social technology for flawed people like us. Even if we were angels, it would still be the best way to cooperate with one another. Jason Brennan, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>